Um, I had a great privilege to have Bethany uh, in our small group this, this year, and it was an incredible time and an incredibly frustrating time because um, we would, uh, after we would have these discussions, it, was, it seemed to be Bethany who would, would, would talk to, to my wife Maggie, and she would be the, the one in the entire group that was actually wrestling and thinking through what do these issues uh, mean to me, and so it was an incredibly wonderful time, but it was incredibly frustrating because she didn't say anything the entire time of the smogger. It was, you know, after with talking one-on-one with Maggie, but um, if you don't, haven't, didn't, weren't able to get to, to know Bethany, you, um, I, I don't know how else to say other than you missed it, and uh, so we've asked uh, Bethany to come up and just share what she's, where she's going and what she's going to do, and then Phil and I are going to come up and, and pray for her as she she goes off. Uh, one other thing, she has asked for moving help, I think, Friday, right? And so if you guys are available, uh, anybody is uh, welcome, and so you can talk to her afterwards. So, Bethany, come on up. Hello. Uh, this fall, I'll be starting my Ph.D. studies at the University of Illinois in food science. Um, when I'm not in class, I'll be um, in the lab full-time doing flavor chemistry research. Um, my, I don't have a topic yet, but my research interests are really with how flavor compounds interact to create the perceived flavor or um, how the flavors release from the whole food system. Um, so I did my master's at U of I and still have friends down there that I've gone to visit over the past couple years. Um, and um, when I visited them, um, I've been going to church down there um, and that's where I'll be attending once I move down. So I know that I'll be in a strong Bible church there. Um, after my doctorate, um, my goal is to either stay in academia as a professor or to go back to the food industry in a research position. Uh, so the whole story of how I um, decided to pursue a PhD and then waiting to, to find out whether I would get accepted is pretty long, so I'll just give you a couple highlights. Um, it, it, God really taught me to wait and trust on him during that process of um, waiting to see if I would get into school. Funding is really difficult right now. Um, so I would talk to professor after professor who would say, I can't accept you because I don't have funding. Um, so for a while it was looking like I wasn't even going to get into school this fall. So it was really exciting when that acceptance letter came. Um, and the answer to months of prayer. And then after that, um, I suddenly had a lot more needs of finding a place to live, of knowing how to tell people at work. So, like, in all the details, God continued to answer prayer and provide for me. Um, so in addition to the growing in my faith through grad school, that process, um, over... The last seven months, I've also been growing in other ways. Um, like Darren kind of mentioned with a small group, 
um, in David Platt's book, there was one chapter that discussed discipleship some, and he rose, he raised the question, are you a receiver or reproducer of the gospel? And that really made me think, and I thought, well, I really want to become more of a reproducer. And decided, well, if I I should be discipled, then maybe that will help me to get more comfortable talking about my faith. So then I reached out to some of the ladies in my small group, and Michelle Hook and I started meeting. That was really good for me because then I had the the discipline to be in the the Bible every week because I knew that I would be meeting to discuss with Michelle. Um, also this spring, I was getting closer to one of my Christian coworkers who has a huge heart for unbelievers, um, Sylvia. So kind of talking with her, I offered my apartment as a place to meet for that study. And Sylvia, my lab mate Cesar and I, all started meeting and studying the book of John together. And that's been a tremendous growing time too. Um, you really study the Bible in a different way when you're going to be teaching someone, especially someone who has next to no background and understanding of the Bible. Um, and Sylvia Cesar and I have had really rich discussions together. So I've been really blessed through the two of them. Um, I also want to say thank you, Rock Valley Bible Church. You um, have really been a family to me. Um, you've been a place where I can grow in God's word and then also the community that makes it safe for me to um, build friendships and be comfortable asking tough questions and really exploring what it means to live the Christian life. I'll miss you guys a lot. Thank you. Would you bow your heads and pray with us, please? Gracious Heavenly Father, we just uh, lift up Bethany to you right now. We just thank you for her life, Father. Thank you for the encouragement she's been to us at Rock Valley Bible Church, Father. How in her quiet way she's been able to encourage us through her life and her words, through the stories we hear of people whose lives she's touched along the way. Father, we thank you for her consistency, for her desire to become a disciple of you. And Father, I pray that in the weeks and months and years ahead, her faith will grow even stronger. Father, may you use her gifts and her unique intellect to reach others, Father, at the high education levels in this country, that she might be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are skeptical, to those who are searching, to those who do not know you. Father, you have her as a witness in those places. We thank you for that. Father, thank you for her obedience. And it's all the praise we give to you for her life in Jesus' name. Lord, I also thank you for uh, my sister Bethany. I pray that as she uh, takes this new step in, in life, I pray that you would go before her. Um, 
You'd be preparing her path down at U of I. Mm-hmm. I pray that um, we would, in some small way, would have encouraged her and helped her to press on um, to grow closer and to love you more. And I pray that that, that change in her heart that I've seen is incredibly evident in her life. I pray that um, those around her down there would see the difference as well, that you would open mm-hmm. opportunities for her to, to share your love and your grace mm-hmm. to those down there. I just pray you would bless her not only for uh, as she finishes her PhD, but then the, the next step of, of, of what's after that as well. So I just thank you for her, and I thank you for um, this church family and for uh, Michelle Hook especially, for her mm. coming alongside and uh, being willing to be encouraged and uh, to, for also discipling Bethany. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Micah 4. And as you do that, I'd like to um, share a story that happened to our family back in May. It was, it was a Saturday, and it was a, a perfect, perfect day out. In, uh, and, and so we decided at the spur of the moment we'd go up to Devil's Lake. And um, so we, we loaded everybody up, and uh, there were some of my friends who were, going up, who were up there already. They were, they were rock climbing. And so we get to Devil's Lake, and... Uh, we we get everybody out. We have lunch and we uh, start climbing. And we we um, had no business actually taking the path and the route that which which we did. But we we ended up getting um, through uh, some perilous uh, hikes up to to where my friends were were rock climbing. And 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 the path that we took was a, just a little bit too much for my two oldest, my nine year old and seven year old. But we also have a, a four year old who's a little wild and crazy, and so she was. She was the one that first decided that she would try rock climbing. So she got her harness on, and um, she got about ten feet up, and she was done. And then the the other two not couldn't be outdone by their little sisters, so they decided that they would they would try it as well, and they got up about about the same distance and came down. And then it was Maggie's turn. She decided that she would go, and so she get, she starts climbing and does really well, and she gets to about five feet from the top. You know, there's just, she's, she's right there. She's right by the, the carabiner that's, that's top, on the top. And, but where she is, is, is there's a little, the rock kind of jets out, and so she can't see where, how, far, how close she is. And so uh, it's, it's kind of a, at a negative angle, and so she tries a couple of different maneuvers and, and isn't able to, to get, you know, get over the, this outcropping and, so, you know, fatigue had started to set in. It was, it was a long climb, and she just uh, decided that she was done, and so she repelled down. And I've asked her permission to share this story, and she said, that's fine on the condition you make sure you tell everybody that everybody who was on the bottom gave her no indication of how close she was. There was no encouragement from the bottom to keep going. Uh, and so she was, she was right there, and she gets down. And, and so, uh, you know, I... I was the last one to go, and so I strapped on the harness, and I climb up, and I get to the point where Maggie was stuck, and I realized very quickly how difficult it would have been for her to, to make it to the top. See, for me, being taller, there was a very easy handhold that I was able to get to that was just out of her reach, being, being of her height, and so I easily grabbed the handhold and, and got out over the, the, the outcropping and got to the top. 
And so as I rappelled down, I take my harness off, and, and Maggie asks the question, you know, well, how did I do? How close was I? I was like, oh, you did great. You know, you were, you were right there. And I pointed, and she was like, well, if you would have told me, I could have made it. You know, it was, I was right there. I could have summoned some type of energy to, to get to the top. And, you know, that story isn't unfamiliar, is it, to most of us? You know, there's stories of people who are so close to a project or so close to the finish line, but they can't see it, and so they just give up. Or some people, the opposite happens, doesn't it? They're, they're right there, they're right at the finish line, and they're ready to give up, but they can see the end, they can see the goal, and they're able to press on and keep going. And as we come to Micah 4, um, what Micah is doing is he's, tell, he's showing these people, the Israelites, that you can, hey, here is the end, here is this, this coming day, keep pressing on in spite of all the difficulties. And so as a, as a review, it was, I looked at my notes. I've, I've preached twice in Micah, but it was, uh, the last time was over a year ago. And so some of you may need a, a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a, to jog your memory as I did. So Micah was written by anybody? Anybody? Yes. One of you is awake. Good. Still. All right. Um, Micah was written by Micah. And it was, um, there, there were real, he had a long extended ministry. And there, it's really a, a consolidation of three of his, his messages. Chapter 1 and 2 is a message. And then uh, chapters 3 through 5 is a message. And then chapters 6 and 7 is his last message. And this was written to the nation of Israel. If you remember, after Solomon's reign, the, the nations divided. So there was the northern ten tribes. And they had, um, they had forsaken the Lord. And in fact, in Micah's ministry, it was the Assyrians had come in and they had... Um, they had just destroyed the northern ten tribes and they had been gone off to, into, Assyria, into Assyria. The, the t- two southern tribes of Judah were, um, had experienced, had just before this experience, a great time of, of prosperity and blessing. But in that time, they, uh, since then, there was kind of a decline. And so the people had forgotten God, had kind of neglected God. It was, he was a nice option in amongst all the other gods. And in, in fact, in Micah's time, the Assyrians would come against Judah and Jerusalem, namely, and they would put a siege around it, but it would, it would be through God's miraculous hand. If you, you remember the amazing story of Hezekiah and how the Lord uh, rescues them, that's during the time of Micah. In fact, it talks in Jeremiah that it was through Micah's words that Hezekiah repents and Assyria goes off. But uh, just a couple of years later, about 100 years later, they would be, the, northern, or the southern two tribes would go into captivity, into Babylon. And so it is appropriate for us to look at these verses. As, as the, the nation has, it was a great nation, is now on the demise and, and has experienced great injustice. And so if you remember Micah 1 and 2, which, we, which I preached on probably, I don't know when, a long time ago, it was talking about God being a judge. If you remember, he says, I'm going to, to judge iniquity. I'm going to judge that which is wrong. I'm going to um, not just let people get away with what they thought was 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 okay, which was clearly evil. And then if you remember, chapter 3 is about God saying things are not the way that they should be. In fact, those people who were leaders were oppressing their own people. If you remember, look in verses, uh, in verse 1 in chapter 3, it says, Is it not for you to know justice? The end of verse 1. And he says to, to the, these leaders, he say in verse 2, You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off of my people and their flesh from off their bones, 
You who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. He's saying, listen, you guys are supposed to be the ones who are protecting. And, and this is in just one instance. You know, the leaders were actually stealing the land of these people that they were supposed to be protecting. In verse 6 it says, because of this, again he reverts back to chapters 1 and 2, the sun shall go down on you prophets and the day will be black. And then he, he sums up what's going to happen in verse 12. He says, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. He's going to destroy Jerusalem. There's going to be, um, there's going to be justice and there's going to, to be things that need to be answered for. And, but he, he gives, Micah gives them a hope. And the most beautiful words in chapter 4. As, so let's read them. It says this, It shall come to pass in latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and the people shall flow to it as many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he much may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for, for nations afar off. And then these familiar words, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall there be war. They learn war any more. But they shall, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his tree, fig tree, for no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who are cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And now, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship from, for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from his enemy, from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to destruction. The wealth of the Lord of the whole earth. And so in verses 1 through 8, we see this coming day. We see this beautiful day, regardless of the people's circumstances. He's saying, there's going to be a great day. Look at it. People will flow to the house of the Lord. He will teach us His ways in verses 1 and 2. It's a time where everything will be right. There will be complete peace. Look at it. It will be 
complete in many cases. It will be complete globally. Look in verse 3. It says, He will judge many, many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And then at the end of the verse, it says, Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So it's going, there's going to be na- national, global peace from nation to nation. But there will also be communal peace. Look in verse 4. It says, But they who shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Communally, no one will make them afraid. I know that some of you, I've talked to some of you, that you're afraid to leave your house at night because you live in some parts of Rockford where it's not, just not safe to do so. He's saying, listen, you, there will be a coming a day where no one will make you afraid. You will be able to leave your house, leave your doors, with the utter, complete confidence that nothing will happen. That there will be no guns shot off for, in, in, with the intent to kill. But not only will there be global and communal peace, there will be individual. Look at the top, beginning of verse 4. It says, They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Here he's talking about everyone will have their own place. There will be a place of protection. There will be a place of food. There will be sustenance. There's an Old Testament image that's used a couple times that's talking about peace and prosperity. Everybody will be happy, happy, happy. If you, nobody gets that, I also, no, that's right. Um, <clears throat> but he goes on. There's amazing words to, uh, talking about the lame. For he says, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom are afflicted. As many of you know, the Israelites had to bring sacrifices to the, to the temple or to the tabernacle, depending on what, what time in the, in the history of the Old Testament. And Leviticus tells who, what they can bring in terms of sacrifice animals. If you remember in Leviticus 22, it says, animals blind or disabled or mutilated or those that have an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You can't offer any, sacri- any um, sacrifices that, are, that aren't right, that aren't perfect. But more than that, he said in, in the chapter before that in Leviticus, he says, there's also a restriction on priests. You can't just have any priest come up. He says for, uh, in, verse, in Leviticus 21, For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect of sight. He's saying, listen, you, there's, gotta be, you, there's, there's qualifications. He has to be physically okay in the, in the, the common law of, of what's acceptable. But here he's saying that he's going to assemble the lame. He's going to make them the remnant. How amazing would it have been for these Israelites to hear that? So the question is for us, verses 1-8, through eight, when is these, these latter days? When is this coming day? And the one thing to understand about uh, Old Testament prophecy, especially the minor prophets, is there can be a there can be fulfillment of these prophecies in, in multiple times, and so what I would argue is there is a fulfillment of these verses in three in three different points in, in history. The first is um, as we talked about before, the two southern nations of of Judah they went they would fall to Babylon and they would go away into captivity, but it was 70 years later under Ezra and Nehemiah, if you remember, that they would come back. How encouraging would these verses be to these people? That their people will flow back to the mountain of the Lord, to Mount Zion. 
there's a fulfillment of these verses 150 years later, but also I think that there's, a direct, there's a directly a fulfillment in the time of Christ. People flowed and flocked to the Lord, didn't they? To, the, to Christ at His time. There were 5,000 that He fed. Just men. There were 4,000 at another time. People flocked and flowed almost supernaturally. They going up the mountain. There's kind of the imagery. This is kind of the, the opposite. Things would, you should flow down. People are flowing up to the mountain just like in the time of Christ. He was the one who healed the blame. There was blind Bartimaeus that he gave sight to. He raised those that were dead. <clears throat> but would you not agree with me that these verses are also not completely fulfilled? Although in some part in Christ they were partly fulfilled, they have not been fulfilled in total. It's talking about the, a coming day, a latter days, a new creation and a new, uh, of the new heavens and a new earth. And so as I thought and I meditated on these words, you know, the, there was kind of this anxiety and this distressing thought that was in my mind. It was, these are beautiful words and they should create an incredible longing and a thankfulness for what the Lord has done in Christ, but an incredible longing for heaven. And if I was on, as I was honest with myself, I was like, well, it's, that wasn't, that's not the case. I'm not looking forward for as, as much as I know I should be of this, this, this picture of the new creation. Some of you may say, well, why does it make any, why, why does it make any difference? In fact, um, you know, isn't it possible to be so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good? Many of you have heard that saying. Oh, I would argue that many of us are so earthly minded that we're no good for heaven or for this earth. And as I thought about it, I think that there's three important reasons why it is important that we have a heavenward perspective. Why we have a perspective focused on a coming day, on those latter days. The first is this. If, if you have a perspective of heaven, it will free you from the desires of this world, of, of money and power and greed and things like that. Perhaps this illustration will help. Imagine for a minute I live in a, in a two-bedroom house. Two-bedroom, one-bath house. Just this tiny little shack of a house. And... I find out that one day that I've inherited from a, from a loved one a beautiful house that I've never seen. An eight-bedroom, six-bath house on ten acres, uh, oceanfront property. And for those of you who, here's the best part, for those of you who are in Rockford, um, the taxes have been paid in perpetuity. All right, So you'll never have to worry about taxes. Um, but, but even more, the, there's a maid service that's been contracted. For the next 30 years, you'll never have to worry about cleaning this, this, this monster house. There's, and on the lake, you actually have, a, have a, uh, this boathouse that has two jet skis and two boats, a pontoon boat and a water skiing boat. I mean, it's perfect in every way, but there's one contingency. And the contingency is this. You have to sell... I have to sell my house, my two-bedroom house, and, and be closed on it. And so, uh, I do, do what any man does, or any person would do. I, sell the, I put the house up on, the, on real, the, the market. And if any of you want to be depressed in Rockford, just know that your, the average house price in Rockford is $74,000. So, there you go. But, um, so, I put my house up for $70,000. The next day, cash offer, no contingencies, 30 days closing day, I get... I, I I'm going to close on the house. So done deal. Well, a week later, imagine if you would, I go and I go to the bank and I said I'd like to take out a loan for fifteen thousand dollars. 
and I get a loan for $15,000, and I go to Lowe's, and I go to Home Depot, and I buy a ton of supplies, and I start remodeling. I reside my house, and I start re- fixing up a, the bathroom, and um, I, I just do all these repairs on, on this my little tiny house. And you, as a friend, you come and hear, you hear about this, and, and it's about five days from closing day. And, and you come up to me, and you put your armor around my on my shoulder and you look at me and you say, You dummy, what are you doing? I mean, do you not know? Have you forgotten that you have a this crazy house waiting for you? And I was telling Maggie the sermon and she's like, This whole story doesn't make sense. And my that was that was my and and, and my if and she I was like, Well that's the whole point. You know, what I was doing was I had no idea of this house that was waiting for me. I, was, I loved this house so much and I, I wanted it to look good and I'm five days away from closing. I shouldn't be thinking about this house. There's, there's no reason to be doing these, these upgrades. I think so many of us are just like that. Where you're investing and you're thinking and you're putting all your time and all your money and all your thoughts into the things of this world. And if you grasp heaven, if you grasp the new creation, what are you doing it for? For what? But I think there's another way, as we'll talk about later. There's, there's great injustices in the world, isn't there? There's, there's injustices. There's wrongs. And I think if you get heaven, you will be able to put those in perspective. You will look for a time where the crooked will be made straight. And then thirdly, though, as in these last couple weeks, as my heart has been focused on heaven... Nothing, my heart has been more transformed by thinking about heaven than by anything that I, than any other spiritual discipline or anything else that I've done in the last weeks or months that I can remember. So I ask you, if you do you want to change? Do you want to be more like Christ? Do you want to meditate on Him? Or, or do you want to be like Him? I would just say meditate on heaven. For those of you who are in a rut, who just don't have a, have a desire for heaven. I, and as I was a couple of weeks ago, I, I just came across this quote from Randy Alcorn as I was uh, reading one of his articles. It says this, quote, if you, have a passion, if you lack a passion for heaven, I can almost guarantee it's because you have a deficient and distorted theology of heaven. So I would argue, I would agree with that. As has been true for me, if you lack a passion for heaven, I would argue that you have distorted and deficient theology of heaven. So what is heaven? Well, first and foremost, heaven is a place where God will be in the center. It, the new creation will be centered on God. Revelation 21 says this, And I saw a new, temp- I saw a new temple in the city. All right, I'm sorry. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. See, in this age, we can't fully behold the glory of God, can we? People would see it and they would have to to hide their face. But in the coming age, we will be attracted to it. Just like in in here, that we will be drawn to it. We will be drawn up to the mountain of the Lord. And so, if you are not a Christian, if you are walking far from the Lord, well, there's no reason you should want to desire heaven. Right? Because God dwells in heaven. That is the first and foremost of what heaven is. And so if you have basically said to God, 
I want nothing to do with you. Well, guess what? On the judgment day, He he will give you that wish. He will separate you eternally from Himself if you desire nothing to do, have nothing to do with Him now. He will give you nothing of Himself in the days, in the in the future, in eternity. And so, there's no reason that you should be longing for heaven, because you don't long for heaven. You don't long for God. But maybe you are a Christian. If you are walking in direct rebellion of what the Lord has called you to do, He's given you a command that's very clear in Scripture, and you are blatantly turned your back and walking away from Him. Well, again, there's no, it's no wonder you don't long for heaven. You know, if you've ever wronged somebody severely, and they know it, and you know it, you don't have a longing to, to see them or on the street or, or at work or whatever. You would try to avoid them at all costs because you've wronged them and you know the, the wrong that's happened to you, to them. <clears throat> see, in heaven, our greatest longing is God and it will be fulfilled. In heaven, we'll say like the psalmist in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my heart, of my heart and my portion forever. In heaven, there will be no coldness. There will be no times where you just feel lukewarm towards the Lord. You will never have a dryness of spirit. You will always and ever have a desire for Him. You know, heaven is more than just about eating donuts and never getting fat. It's not about playing golf every day. It's about God. We, don't we all want to see the smile of God? Smile on our on us, you know. And the blessing of Aaron in Numbers six. Many of you know it. Um, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to what shine upon you. you. Do you know that in heaven, that's the ultimate fulfillment of that? Revelation twenty two four. They will see His face, and then His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. For in heaven you will experience the light of God. You will know that He has loved you from all eternity. He loves you still and He will love you forever. There is a quote that is one of my favorites. It's by Jonathan Edwards. He says this, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness to which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven... Fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than any of the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers or mothers, husbands, wives or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. God is the ocean. You see, that is what heaven is about. Heaven is first and foremost about God. It, it, imagine for a minute if you go to a wedding and you sit down and you're escorted to a spot and up front you see all the, the groomsmen and you see the, the officiant up in, in the front and then the doors close and you, you see all the bridesmaids come up. And then the, you see the little flower girls and the ring bearers come up. And then the doors close again and the doors open only to see the bride come down. But if you were listening, there was one thing missing. What was it? The groom. There was no groom in this story. Well, that's a problem. 
A wedding isn't a wedding if there's no groom. If you desire heaven for all the good things or all the things of, of, that God can give you, but you don't desire heaven for God, it's like going to a wedding where there's no groom. See, if we get that God and the greatness of Him and our pleasure is found in Him, nothing else matters. <clears throat> but some of you may say, well, yeah, I get that, but still, I mean, what, what is heaven going to be like? I mean, I'd, I'd, it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, in fact, I asked that question. What, what is heaven like? I asked that to a bunch of people. Um, one of the most interesting responses was from a man at work. He told me in 1993 he fell asleep at the wheel and plunged 60 feet over a cliff to his near-death experience. He said it was three years before he actually um, was able to walk again. But he had a very interesting perspective on, on what is heaven like. But I, for you kids, I have a question in your notes. What, what is heaven like? Um, you can either draw a picture or, um, or write it in. And for any of you parents playing along at home, you can do the same. I'll give you guys like... Um, 30 seconds. Why don't you guys, what do you guys think heaven will be like? You guys can write it down or draw a picture if you so choose. What is heaven going to be like? Time's up. Um, it, it, like I said, it was it was fascinating to ask this question to Christians and non-Christians alike. I got any number of answers, but it almost seemed like the default position was kind of like everybody on their personal pink cloud, kind of just floating along, just kind of in the sea of nothingness, with this kind of goofy smile on their face, sitting cross cross-legged. You know, and that was kind of the default position, even for people who were who knew better, you know, that they know that heaven's not like that. They're like, well, that's kind of the first image that comes into mind. And if that is your vision, if that is your idea of heaven, I can only think of one word. It's boring. Right. I mean, isn't that the only way that sounds in partially interesting is if you each personal cloud has like a sweet motor and you can play bumper clouds, right? I mean, that's the only reason like that, that would be fun. Other than that, no thanks. Um, and so to help us think about heaven, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to break one of the big rules of preaching. One of the people who really do this all the time, who know what they're doing, the seminary professors and preachers, they say, make sure if you're ever going to quote somebody, do it very, very seldom because when you quote somebody, people just zone out more than usual. You know, people usually zone out, but when you quote, they especially zone out. And then, so if you're going to quote, make sure that your quote is very short. So if like people really drift off, at least they can come back, you know, somewhat in a reasonable amount of time. So, well, I'm going to break all those rules. And the reason for that is, um, you know, I realize that I haven't thought hard and thought deeply and the way I should about heaven. And so uh, I've been in the mind of, of a couple men who have thought incredibly deeply and hard about heaven and what it would be like. And so I'm going to quote them. And so I, that's the purpose in these quotes. So I want you to try to not drift when I start to, to quote these guys. 
Um, but these quotes, mainly they're going to be uh, from Jonathan Edwards or from Sam Storms, who has, has basically fought through John Edwards, Jonathan Edwards and kind of built upon him. Um, <laughs> Jonathan Edwards has been considered by most people or who know these things to be like one of the greatest American theologians that we, we, we've had. And, and I don't know if that's true or not. I can just tell you by um, someone who's not prone to get headaches, by the quantity and quantity of headaches that I've experienced this week from Jonathan Edwards, I would agree with that comment. In fact, um, I had a bad headache after reading him for a couple, about a half an hour <clears throat> on Sunday. And Maggie's like, what? What's wrong? I said, I have a bad headache. And she said, well, why? And I said, Jonathan Edwards. And so um, <clears throat> um, here is, uh, to again, you know, as I quote these guys, don't try to, these guys have thought hard and I, and I want you to, to think, because if you, Steve Alcorn also said somewhere else, if you haven't thought hard about heaven, you don't desire heaven because you haven't thought hard about it. And so um, I'm going to try to make his thoughts not be hard for you, but um, to hopefully expand and blow your idea of heaven. First of all, he says that he talks about heaven being a place of ever-increasing grace. If you go to Ephesians 2, it's talking about God. God is saying He makes us alive together with Christ and He raises us up. And here is verse 2-7. Ephesians 2-7. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us and toward, toward us in Christ Jesus. And then He makes this point. God is an infinite God. And if God is an infinite God, all of His characteristics and attributes are infinite. However, we are infinite, or we are finite people. We have finite thoughts. We have finite ideas. If that is ca- the case, He makes the argument that we will grow ever more in grace in heaven. We will know perfectly, but we will not perfectly know everything. We will not be all-knowing. There, many people think that there's going to be a spontaneous flash of light, right? And then it's just going to be the sea of calm for all of time. And he would say, no, not, absolutely not. It's going to be like waves that crash onto the seashore. And the tide will continue to get bigger, higher and higher. And the waves will get bigger and bigger and bigger. It will be like a stock market that always goes up and never goes down. There will not be this flash of light. The only thing that's going to be instantaneous in heaven is going to be the elimination of sin and wickedness and evil desires. Sam Storms, who has a far greater mastery of the English language, says this, Our experience of God will never become stale. It will deepen and develop and intensify and amplify and unfold and increase and broaden and balloon. Our relishing and rejoicing in God will sharpen and spread and extend and progress and mature and flower and blossom and widen and stretch and swell and snowball and inflate and lengthen and augment and advance and proliferate and accumulate and accelerate forever. It's going to be ever-increasing grace. And I would ask you, what are the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness? Is it not His saving work? I would argue that in heaven you will come to somebody and you will say, what are the riches of God's grace in you? And, you will share, and he or she will share with you how the Lord has worked in their life. And you will have ever-increasing knowledge in, of, and a grace of how the Lord has worked. But not only will you have ever-expanding 
increase of grace. You will have increasing of knowledge. There will be times, I would argue, that you will be so overwhelmed by God that you don't think you can take anymore. It will be like this week. You know, my, I felt like this small little pea-sized brain of mine was about ready to explode. It couldn't take anymore. But at that point in heaven, don't you see that God will increase your ability to comprehend Him? He will expand your faculty to behold Him. Think about the angels. Angels are perfect, right? But don't you know that they don't know the time or place of Christ's return? Or in Ephesians 3.10, it says this, that the church, it's through the church, the manifold wisdom of Christ is being made known to them, to the, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we as a church are making known the wisdom of God to the angels. So they're growing, they're knowing so is it not possible for us as well to increase and know in heaven? Randy Elkhorn, in his appropriately titled book on heaven, says this, The term perfect is often misused when it describes our state in heaven. I've heard it said, for instance, we'll communicate perfectly, so we'll never be at a loss for words. I disagree. I expect we'll sometimes grasp for words to describe the wondrous things we'll experience. I expect I'll stand in speechless wonder at the glory of God, I'll be morally perfect, but that doesn't mean I'll be capable of doing anything and everything. Adam and Eve were morally perfect, but that didn't mean that they could automatically invent nuclear submarines or defy gravity. They were perfect yet finite, just as we will be. And then Jonathan Edwards makes this illustration. He says that in not, we will always be increasing in knowledge in heaven. And so if we're ever increasing in knowledge, we'll ever increase in holiness because we'll, we'll know more, and so we'll be, be more like Him. And so if we know more and we're more holy, we'll see His excellency, His excellency, and we'll love Him more, and then we'll delight in Him more, and that will make us more happy. And then we will know Him more. And there will be this endless, infinite, infinite cycle of knowledge and holiness and light and love and delight and happiness, because God is infinite. And we are finite. And if He is infinite, so are His attributes. And so we will grow in love and happiness in Him. Think about Ephesians 3. It says this in 3.18-19. His prayer, Paul's prayer is that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to, listen to this, to know the love of Christ that what? That surpasses knowledge. Sam Storm says this, Perhaps Edwards' greatest insight into the glory of heaven is that this enjoyment, these sweet exercises will never cease, but will last to all eternity. But more than that, they will actually intense, increase and intensify and expand. Whatever joy we experience in heaven, we will forever grow. Will forever grow. Whatever pleasures we feel in heaven will forever deepen. We will never fully or finally arrive. As if once have tasted such sweet delights, we will have exhausted their capacity to satisfy our souls. It, is only, it will only get better forever. It will only taste sweeter forever. It will only appear more beautiful forever. With each joyful encounter, encounter we will have only touched a small measure of an even greater, perpetual, infinite, and internal increase. In heaven, everything you desire, you get. Every longing will be fulfilled. 
you will have no unmet passions. Why? Because all your desires will be only for what is good and what is right. Can you comprehend that? Can you think about that? I can't. But not only this, Jonathan Edwards goes on and he says, we will experience the joys of this world, but in redeemed and perfect ways. What causes you to glorify God now? What causes you to worship Him? Don't, aren't we to do all things to the glory of God? So to the effect that we trust in Him and we experience His working in our lives, we are to glorify Him in all that we do. In new, the new earth, it's going to be the creation. It's going to be the restoration of the original design of the Garden of Eden. We will experience that restoration. In Romans 8, it talks about, it claims that heaven will be, or that all of earth, all creation groans for that coming day. So if that's the case, does it not make sense that we will experience all those things that are good and right and here, but only in a redeemed and more perfect state? Doesn't it make sense that there will be mountains and plants and animals there? Doesn't it make sense that we will work in heaven? Genesis 2.15, this is before the fall. God says, the, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So we will do all these things, but we will do them in redeemed and perf- perfected ways. We will glorify God in all the things that we do now, but without the limitations of sin. And we will be able to have the ability to take in new thoughts and new ideas. He argues that we will see new colors. We will experience new foods. That we will see new animals. Perhaps a unicorn in heaven. He says, Edward says this, Every perceptive faculty shall be an inlet to delight. Sam Storms again says this, That we will grow in happiness in heaven seems evident from the fact that the ideas and thoughts and insights into the nature of and work of God will forever increase. We are mistaken to think that what we perceive to be beautiful now is the limit or boundary for what will be beautiful in heaven. With new heavens and new earth, there will undoubtedly be new colors, new combinations, new hues, new depths of radiance, new sounds, endlessly infinite and diverse melodies and rhythms, together with new faculties of mind, sense and spirit, to apprehend new disclosures of God's infinite splendor. And if you aren't convinced... Here is a quote from Jonathan Edwards who was a Puritan and you may forever think differently about Puritans after this quote. But he says this. Here is heaven. In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such emotion that shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. And then lastly, here is, a, here is an argument of Edwards that some people may disagree, but he says that there will be different levels of holiness. And with different levels of holiness, there will be a hierarchy in heaven. He says, Edwards says this, the saints are of different sizes cast into a sea of happiness where every vessel is full, 
But after all, it is, is left to God's sovereign pleasure to determine the largeness of the vessel. So what he's saying is we're all going to be cast into this sea of happiness as it will. But some will have different levels of happiness. Some will have small little Dixie cups, but they will be full. So you will be happy completely, perfectly. Some of you will have great big 55-gallon barrels full of happiness. But forever, those vessels will be ever-increasing, ever-expanding in size, but always full. Isn't it true in this world, aren't we, don't you look at some Christians, we are all saved by grace and grace alone, praise God, but isn't it true that some people just have, seem to have a special anointing in their lives, that God just seems to bless some people in a special way? There will be a hierarchy in heaven. For in Matthew, it talks about the 12 disciples who are going to rule. And it says that we will rule. First Corinthians says, do you not know that we will judge the angels? Verse, uh, Revelation 22.5 says that we will reign forever. And so we are told to focus on the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. For it is what we do in this matters. In this life, what matters? It will determine our happiness and our reward in heaven. Second Peter 3 says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, these things, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, I want to be careful what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that we can earn our way to salvation or earn our way into the new creation by good works. That is only through the work of Christ and his, on the, what He's done on the cross and through the resurrection. We are only justified by faith and faith alone. But after you are a son or daughter in Christ, after He did that, God delights in your works to the extent that they are done in trust and obedience to Him and working through His Spirit in you. The Bible is clear that there will be a judgment as to your faith. But then secondly, there will be a time where your deeds are judged. That's what's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 3. It says in verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the foundation. But on top, it goes on to say, but some people are going to lay on top of that things that are out of gold and silver and precious stones. But other people will lay wood and hand straw. Each one will be, man's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And then it goes on and it says, He will receive a reward if the foundation survives. <clears throat> There's a multitude of verses that, that show this. I'll just read a couple of them. Paul is talking to Christians and in Romans he says this, God will give to each person according to what He has done. In Revelation 2.23, Jesus is speaking. He says, I am, I am He who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Revelation 14.13 Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Or Revelation 19.7-8 The wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen and bright clean was bright and clean was given to her. And then they, there's this parentheses in verse 8. It says, The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Hebrews 6.10 God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown Him as you have helped His people. 
to, and continue to help them. Well, I trust that these thoughts and these, mind, these ideas of, of Micah's vision has helped banish the idea of just being a floating on a cloud, but have, have made you long for that day. But very, very quickly, if, you, if we go back to Micah, he's not only talking about a, a coming day, but he talks about a current day. If you look at verse 9, he says this in a current day, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out of the city and there dwell in the open country. You shall go out to Babylon. He reverts back to chapter 3. He says, yes, there's this coming day, but then he, he quickly turns course and says, now listen though, this coming day is, is not here. The current day is where things are, are bad. In fact, you will go out from the city. You're going to, he, he's prophesying that you're going to go into Babylon to be destroyed. <clears throat> I'm always uh, um, interested in. Well, I'll skip that for time. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll, um, but some of you know what it is like to experience pain like this, right? To have emotional pain, the pain like a woman in labor, to writhe and groan, O daughter in Zion, like a woman in labor. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have experienced the loss of a loved one or the betrayal, or the abandonment of a loved one. Some of you can maybe not think of an experience where you've experienced that. But I've read multiple accounts. I was reading just recently the New York Times article about Afghan Christians who have basically, they, became, they came to know Christ and they were given an ultimatum by their family, either be uh, convert back to Islam or be neglected and be abandoned by your family or worse, be, be killed by your family. And so they've left and they've gone to, to India. And so the church in a couple of Indian uh, cities is growing and expanding, but there's all new sorts of problems because they can't prove their residency because of legal things. And so I would say the, those Afghan Christians, they know what it is like to look, realize that today, the current day is not like that coming day. Or I don't know if I read just uh, recently, if you know, the, in North Korea celebrated what they call Victory Day. It's the 60-year uh, anniversary of the end of the Korean War. And you can't read more than 10 minutes about North Korea. And just, you know, as I read about North Korea, as amazing and how as blown away as I was about a vision and a, uh, the audacity of heaven, I felt the same opposite feeling for North Korea. I mean, you, if you read anything about it, you can't help but say, is this even possible for not even people who are in the gulags, um, but especially them, but just normal human beings. Those Christians, if you read any Christian accounts in North Korea, um, these people know what it is like to have pain like a woman in labor. And some of you would say, well, th- that's just it. That's why I don't think heaven can be that great because if there's this much pain and there's this much hurt in this world, how can heaven be like the great and wonderful thing that it is that you claim it to be? And Jonathan Edwards again is helpful in because he says that is the very thing that shows us that heaven is so great because isn't it true that God can truncates and has not given us 
all of our joys. He has not given us our desires and our, given us exceeding satisfaction. It is for that very reason that He makes us desire heaven. But then lastly, look in verses 11-13. through 13. We see a conquering Christ that says, Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. God is going to demolish all of Judah's enemies. But what I didn't read is this continues because in chapter 5 it says how that's going to happen. If you look in verses 2 and 3, he's talking about a ruler who's going to come out of Bethlehem. A very clear, distinct reference to Christ. And in verse 4 it says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, and now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And verse 5 says, And he shall be their peace. See, the Lord says, I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to demolish all your enemies. But they had a different perspective. It wasn't in the way that they thought. It was going to be 600 years later in the person of Christ. And He wasn't going to come as a military leader who was going to overthrow anybody who was an enemy of, Christ, of, of the nation of Israel. It was going to be through His death and resurrection. And so there's the dilemma for them because they thought that it's, it seems very clear in verses 11 through 13, right, that He's going to demolish them. But it's not in the way that they thought. And so it is for us. The conflict for us is in how the Lord and how you expect the Lord to rescue you. We don't understand the dilemma between the already in the, coming, in, in the current day and the not yet in the coming day. We don't have this heavenward perspective in the now and then. And so we, we put value on those things that are of no importance, don't we? We're struck somewhere between um, this person. We think if we just only think about heaven, we're, gonna, we're around the sandwich sign that says the end is near or the end is coming tomorrow. Or we just neglect God altogether because we can't, or we neglect heaven and the idea of the new heavens and the new earth. But with Christ, He will give you a heavenward perspective. In Christ, He will be your peace. He will put all things in perspective and He will think of, help you think about this earth and the new earth. <clears throat> it was with Christ that we will have a different perspective on this earth. Listen, I, I, this is the quote that I want to leave you with from Randy Alcorn. He says this, When you fix your mind on heaven and see the present in light of eternity, even little choices become tremendously important. After death, we will never have another chance to share Christ with one who can be saved from hell, to give a cup of water to the thirsty, to invest money to help the helpless and reach the lost, or to share our homes, clothes, and love with the poor and the needy. See, in light of eternity, those decisions may not make sense for this earth. But you need to do those in light of eternity. So I ask you, is there some of you that need to um, share Christ with those who can be saved from hell? Do you need to give someone a cup of water to the thirsty? 
do, do some of you need to not spend money on these things of this earth and spend money on those things that will last, that will not fade away? Some of you maybe need to spend money. You are a hoarder and you don't give your money away because you think in that you have security. Some of you need to give the money away. You see, it is that we can experience the coming day because of the perfect work of this conquering Christ on the cross and through His resurrected body. He is our peace. He is our conquering Christ. The Christ that will be our desire and our delight and our fulfillment for all of eternity. It is His glory that we will behold. This Christ is the conquering King of the current heaven, of the current earth, and the new heaven, and the new earth. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?